Welcome to the Codcast. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, inviting you to listen to a new series focused on societal changes wrought by COVID-19. It's produced by our good friends at the Massing Polling Group. Enjoy the show. Today's episode of Mass Reboot is sponsored by the Massachusetts Business Roundtable, an employer-driven member organization comprised of CEOs and senior executives from large employers. Through the roundtable, business leaders engage with the public and private sectors to advance policies that support the state's competitiveness and long-term economic prosperity. Certain days in March of 2020 are lodged in people's minds. Many can pinpoint when shutdown announcements came through, when their offices closed down, when they got sick. One of those moments that really pushed us out of the world before COVID and into what we've been living ever since was when schools shut down. Now, given the involving data regarding cases of COVID-19 and out of abundance of caution for the health and safety of children and school staff, I'm ordering a three-week suspension of school operations for educational purposes at all public and private elementary and secondary schools. Pretty much everyone at that point underestimated how long COVID would last. There was no protocol in place for what would be done while schools couldn't operate in person. One New Bedford teacher remembers exactly what that time was like at his school. Just a bunch of chaos and confusion. Um, you know, even from my perspective, we weren't told when our last day was. And so I still remember uh, thinking that we might not come in. And then on Friday, being told that schools were shut down indefinitely. Takeru Nagayoshi and tens of thousands of teachers across Massachusetts had to create a new kind of teaching. Students, a new kind of learning. And parents were thrust into new and unfamiliar roles. Then there was the madness of the hybrid year. Some students in person, some remote, some a little of both. Switching formats back and forth in barely controlled chaos, often with little warning. Announcements about openings and closures were often sudden. The new academic year begins in just a few weeks, and we still don't fully understand the impacts of the pandemic on students, schools, and parents. That's partly because it's still going on, and partly because there's no paradigm for measuring the effects of a multi-year global pandemic. But a few things from the last year are very clear. Students suffered. And this year is going to require major change. So where do schools begin? How do they tackle the pandemic's blow to children's overall well-being? Where do academic losses fit in? And what should be the goals for this year? That's what we're talking about today. I'm Libby Gormley, and this is Mass Reboot a podcast about restarting Massachusetts after COVID and what we lost along the way. This is episode six, School. It's great to be back again this week with my excellent co-hosts. Jennifer Smith, hey guys. And Steve Cazella, hey everybody. This week we're exploring a topic that's very relevant for the two of you. Jen, you're in law school, and Steve, you're a parent of school-aged kids. Um, tell me a little bit about the shift that took place for both of you when COVID hit and schools really changed. 
Well, it's been weird. We did one test run in class with 70 students and a constitutional law professor on a video call, which honestly sounds like the start of a bad joke. And then we all went home on a normal March day and woke up to an email saying, hey, don't come back. We're going to be virtual from here on out. And that's really been the situation since then. Some of my classmates have been hybrid for the last term. I'm coming back to in-person classes in a month, but it's been really stressful, I think, because it's much easier to lose track of lectures on Zoom, tech problems can basically stop an entire class in its tracks, and then the professors have all been great, but, you know, it's hard to cold call people on a Zoom. So it's been a strange experience. It definitely hasn't been a traditional law school experience, but we're grappling with a lot of the same things that everyone else is, to be honest. Because, Steve, I was a student. You had some very small students living in your house. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. We have three at home, and two of them are in elementary school, and one of them still in pre-K. But the thing that I really remember about the earliest days was that it all kind of happened at once. We closed down the office, the schools closed down, and I got COVID all at the same time. So that was kind of what the very earliest experience was for me. And those first few weeks were just complete chaos. You know, schools didn't really know exactly how to do remote school at that point, which I think no one can really blame them for. Um, But they were kind of figuring it out as we were figuring it out. The one thing that did make it easier for us specifically was that my wife is a teacher, so she could help the kids. But it was not easy. Other parents that we know just kind of gave up on remote school pretty quickly and just tried to keep their children happy and functional. So what families were doing was pretty much all over the map. And then the other thing was that we did a lot of survey work on education, including four polls of K-12 parents in Massachusetts, much of which we'll be talking about on this episode. And for context, well, Jen, your grad school experience is a very interesting one, and we wish we had time to delve into the higher education world as well. For the sake of brevity and clarity, this week we'll be talking about school as it applies to kindergarten through 12th grade here in Massachusetts. So with that said, let's get into it, shall we? Let's do it. Let's go. When Massachusetts schools shut down in the second week of March, most administrators and teachers were unprepared. The brief time they had to brace for COVID was nowhere close to enough time to invent a whole new way to do school. But we also thought the disruption would be short-lived. Many schools started with closures of only a few weeks. But by early April, that had all changed. Today our administration's announcing that all public and private schools will remain closed through the end of the school year. What happened next for individual students really depended on two things, how the school districts dealt with the situation and the students' home environments. It's safe to say that no school district pulled off a flawless pivot to virtual classrooms, but some cities and some schools struggled more than others. Students in homes with access to good enough computers and fast enough internet to do remote school were usually pretty well set up for what came next. But for a lot of students, none of those things applied. We started surveying parents in those first few months, and one of the things that showed up early on were technology barriers and language barriers. One in four lower-income households reported they did not have enough devices for work and school. Another 17% didn't have good enough internet. And if you were a student who didn't have what you needed, you were much less likely to engage at all in online classrooms or get feedback from teachers. This was a pretty common reality in some districts. Tracy O'Connell Novick is a member of the Worcester School Committee. Her two daughters were in the public schools during the pandemic. Let's 
note that there's a very, very big divide in Massachusetts from between the districts where you can send a student home on Friday and say, you know, jump online and be under the assumption that that student has at least a family computer and has has internet, has, you know, ha- will have ac- online access without the district having to do anything else. Worcester Public Schools did have to do something else. Massing estimates that 28% of all households in the city of Worcester do not have a computer. Relatively early in the pandemic, Worcester Public Schools had the devices students needed, but it was distribution that was the problem. We had, we have had, we did have thousands of Chromebooks that were sitting locked in our buildings um, for a number of months that just didn't get distributed um, until May. Boston public schools also faced backlash when, in September of 2020, five months after schools first shut down, the advocacy group Lawyers for Civil Rights called out the district for failing to distribute laptops to all of the students who needed them. Families of students without computers had reached out to that group, desperate. One of the questions in our poll was about how many students could connect to online school activities and materials. Places that had a harder time with this tended to be urban areas. Boston, and the Gateway Cities. Those are mid-sized regional cities in Massachusetts that often face economic hardships. New Bedford is one of them, and Takeru Nagiyoshi, who also goes by TK, says lack of internet access was one reason some of his students couldn't log on. But it wasn't the only one. There are a lot of students who don't have households that have consistent internet access. Or I have students where they had to be essential workers to help provide for their family, uh, especially for those uh, whose parents or family members were laid off. Suddenly, schools found themselves trying to do a lot of things at a distance. The first task, as TK saw it, was just reestablishing contact. I remember when kids skipped my class in the past, I would literally just go to their next class and then confront them and ask, hey, I just noticed you weren't in my class, what's going on? Uh, And those are things that we couldn't do. So TK took a different tack to make those connections. Uh, You know, at least for me, I had an Excel sheet that was color-coded, and I wanted to make sure that I hit every student at least once a week. But there were some students he couldn't reach. It's a national phenomenon, right? This idea of missing students. And and specifically at New Bedford, a third of our students are English language learners. Uh, A lot of them are from immigrant communities. According to Massink polling group surveys, just 35% of students where English was not spoken at home reported any kind of personalized feedback from teachers. In homes where English was spoken, 54% reported receiving personalized feedback. When the personal connection vanished among students and their teachers, school staff, peers, a lot of the joy that comes from the school environment also disappeared. Tracy O'Connell-Novick, who used to be a teacher herself, saw the opportunities for connection and intervention dwindle as schools went remote. If you don't have those sort of 30 seconds as the kids are coming into the school building um, or into your classroom, if you don't have the kid who sort of hangs back after class to talk to you, if you're missing all of those casual interactions and everything has to be a deliberate interaction, the opportunities, and I mean, particularly I taught high school, particularly for um, young adults, I think are much, much less for someone to say, you know, hey, I'm really struggling with this, whether it's academic or mental health or something that's going on at home or all of those kinds of things. And I think of all of the conversations that I had as a teacher 
that took place in those much more casual sorts of conversations. They weren't part of class time. They weren't part of anyone being assigned to a group for me in any kind of way. Those were ones that that we lost. Executing remote school wasn't as simple as throwing 30 kids onto a Zoom and calling it a classroom. That's what parents quickly found out. Tanya Nixon-Silberg has a daughter entering third grade in Boston. They tried to approximate the school day online. Um, there were very little breaks. Um, and also she was, um, there were some parts where it's just, it just wasn't like conducive to them learning, but it was in, it was synchronous. They were, they were all in the same class, um, online. Um, and we didn't do that for very long, uh, cause it was just very apparent that this, that, that format is, was not working for her. Synchronous instruction is one of the words school parents are all very familiar with by now. Basically, it means the students are watching their lessons live. Asynchronous, on the other hand, includes things like worksheets or videos, basically any work that doesn't involve watching the teacher live. During COVID, most schools had big doses of both. So it was synchronous and she could have been there from 9.30 to 2.30, but we it just wasn't working out. And like, there was really no learning happening and no happiness. And like, we kind of need that, especially during a pandemic, right? Um, it wasn't long before Tanya saw a problem we're all now very familiar with. Uh, the Zoom fatigue set in very early for her. Um, so Tanya did what a lot of parents did. She took more of the teaching duties on herself. Parents of color were most likely to say they were supplementing school assignments or just relying entirely on their own projects. And it was no easier for the high schoolers and their families. Tracy's oldest daughter was in her senior year when COVID hit. I know in my own daughter's case, you know, all all of the other sort of pieces of things of, you know, how do you do a college search if you can't literally go anywhere? Um, how do you make, you know, good decisions about next steps if you can't go anywhere? And she also, in her, in particular, went through a significant amount of, you know, the SATs are canceled and the um, the ACTs are canceled and you're taking the AP online, but you actually didn't get, like, it's through a different application and sort of the cascading effects of all of what that ended up meaning um, is honestly something I think we're still working out as a family. Disruption to college planning and exhaustion from staring at screens and going generally stir-crazy were absolutely disorienting for students. But the loss of the physical school building was a loss for another reason, too. Schools are much more than places where students go to learn. They're also a community. And for some families, they provide life-saving resources. Schools feed kids, and schools are where lots of kids get their, their just physical care. And schools are where kids get mental health care, and kids are, schools are where kids um, get a lot of things besides education. And certainly social and, you know, athletic and music and all of those kinds of things. That was pretty much how everything played out for the rest of the school year. Not much contact, and schools and families doing the best they could. In trying to understand the devastation of that year, it's hard to know where to begin. The personal impacts of upheaval, isolation, even death, are both immeasurable and critical to understand. There's also the blow to students' academic progress, which was severe. But in a time of tragedy, how important is that? 
I, I think a lot of educators started pivoting towards emphasizing, right? Uh, it's about grace over grades. It's about, you know, seeing them as people first and scholars second. And so there was this needed adjustment about what our roles are as adults, as educators in the lives of our students. As the academic year wrapped in the spring of 2020, it was already clear the next year would not be back to normal. Over the summer, school officials from the local to state level prepared for another 180 days of disruptions. The state closure mandate ended, and districts responded by offering various formats in the fall. Many included some level of in-person teaching for at least some students. But as Tanya remembers, that brought on its own set of challenges. In the Boston Public Schools, a lot of the schools don't have age, like they don't have ventilation. There are windows that don't open. Um, I remember just watching and following a lot of teachers saying, this is what they're asking us to do. So they're putting fans in windows that only open up six inches, right? Um, in the winter, right? And so there are kids that were in the classroom like freezing. Some districts went back to full-time in-person school. Others stayed fully remote and others went hybrid. As with almost everything COVID-related, there were disparities. The kids in all remote were disproportionately lower income, while wealthier students were more likely to be either in hybrid formats or in person from the beginning of the year. Hybrid schooling meant students were home part of the time and at school part of the time. Beyond that, there was really no consistent definition. Some kids went in a few days out of every week. Others went in every other week. Others still went in just occasionally. And this changed often week to week, month to month, sometimes with no warning at all. And all of this added up to one thing, chaos. Chaos for parents, chaos for students, and chaos for teachers. It was me in the corner of my classroom talking to a computer while half of my students were actually in person looking at me through their own screens while I was also addressing another virtual set of students. Uh, and then we had all a bunch of different cohorts where the kids switched off because we wanted to minimize the number of kids who were coming in person. Uh, and then just tracking, right, all of these different variables around who's in person, who just recently switched to in person, who's virtual, who's virtual typically but decided to come in person and vice versa was just another logistical nightmare. And all throughout the year, the, the, the criteria, the expectations and the rules kept changing. And so that was just another headache uh, on top of just navigating both time and space dimensions as a teacher. The idea was that the closer to in-person schooling you could get, the better. But in fact, what we found in our polling was that hybrid schooling was parents' least favorite option across a range of measures in the poll. The unpredictability of it all was one reason parents disliked it. The demand shifted constantly. The format shifted. The rules shifted. And all that came while many parents were also trying to balance their other home responsibilities. Some parents tried to create a sense of order with their own DIY methods. Some started education pods, pooling kids together and sharing the burden with other parents. Those who could afford it hired private tutors or sent their children to remote learning centers, some for the academics, but also just to see people. COVID school was lonely. Some parents preferred remote schooling for various reasons. One of those reasons was safety. Throughout the pandemic, communities of color were hit harder by COVID infections than the state as a whole. This made parents more skeptical of the safety of the school environment specific to COVID. And then there were the things that happened to students inside the school building. Our polling found Black and Latino parents reported fewer instances of unfair treatment and fewer disciplinary actions when their children were in remote school. There's been this reporting that's happened online, which I think is important and something that schools need to take really 
seriously has been, um, you know, the number of parents of color who have said that, you know, they were able to shut down microaggressions in the classroom, or they were able to sort of intervene when there was something that was happening that was completely inappropriate. As we grew to understand COVID better, and especially as vaccinations rolled out, more and more schools instituted in-class instruction. By the end of the school year, the vast majority of students were in person again. But in just a few short months, things have changed. New COVID variants have arrived, and the idea of returning to in-person school is more complicated now than it was when students left the classroom for the summer. So how do schools plan for the next year, both in terms of keeping kids safe and keeping them engaged and happy? More on that after the break. Today's episode of Mass Reboot is sponsored by our good friends at Rasky Partners. They're a longtime supporter of ours and a nationally recognized government affairs and communications firm. For over 30 years, the team at Rasky has worked with all types of organizations, large and small, helping each one reach their business objectives through advocacy and storytelling. Find out more at rasky.com. That's R-A-S-K-Y.com. The school reboot has one unique element. It has to start at a certain time. Offices are rethinking their return dates after the Delta variant's arrival. Schools can't do that. The next academic year is starting in a few weeks, one way or another. What's far less clear is what the reboot should look like. Many educators see the need to address more than just academics. The grief that the pandemic brought, it hit everyone. Tracy says school districts should not ignore the emotional burden the past year and a half has put on students. What she describes here, and what she emphasized throughout our conversation, is that a laser focus on just making up for lost learning is misguided. I mean, I was looking at the headlines today, right? And so we've got the New York Times article saying, how much did we lose this past year? And that was on top of the New York Times article of, you know, third grade was a total loss that they had in the Sunday Times. And I was like, oh my gosh, you guys, like, First of all, we've had a freaking pandemic. There's over a million children who have lost their primary caregivers that are like literally are dead. Um, And the amount of time and attention that I see paid to that versus paid to third grade reading is just catastrophic. And I mean, Tracy says every family entering the new school year will be reckoning with their own personal traumas. But their socioeconomic status and specific community will have a significant impact on how they view the upcoming year's priorities. Again, to me, this speaks to whose parents died and whose parents, grandparents died and whose didn't. So we're going to have this, you know, panic over third grade reading because maybe my, you know, middle class white kids didn't spend quite as much time sitting in a classroom as they would have. Meanwhile, the number of kids, particularly who are Black and Latino, who have lost you know, someone who an adult who they loved and lived with um, over the past 18 months, like the hole that that has left in so many families and in so many children's lives is huge. But the data from that New York Times article and many other analyses are pretty clear. Students learn less during COVID interruptions than they would in normal years. And as with pretty much everything in COVID, those impacts were deeper for students of color than for white students. Where things diverge is how much that matters. To Tanya, the very concept of catching students up after COVID doesn't make much sense. 
I do think that, you know, this idea of catching up is you're catching up to um, an ideology. It's not a real thing. <laughs> like what we're asking for kids to do, right, is we're asking them to catch up to an ideology. That's not to say school doesn't matter to Tanya. Not at all. Just the way that we measure success is flawed. My my biggest thing for her is that that we we work on the social and emotional before we work on the skills um, uh, of what happens in the classroom. A summer program Tanya's daughter took part in focused on those things. And Tanya says it made a real difference. I noticed over the summer, uh, because this, this, uh, this academy really just focused on um, uh, relationship, um, she flourished. Right, she was more a lot, lot more apt to to be a part of the learning community when she was a part of the social community. On the administrative side, Tracy says that school budgets are priority documents, and reacting with immediate panic over test scores is missing educators' primary brief. I worry whenever we try to boil education down to. This is about reading and math and forget that public education in Massachusetts is about preparing children to eventually become adults who participate in democracy. I mean, that's our constitutional mandate. Um, And I I think that if we can remember that when we're doing things like constructing the budget or setting our goals for our school district or those kinds of things, um, I think we do much better than if we're, you know, immediately thinking ahead to next MCAS scores, next accountability status, or whatever it is. The next school year is fast approaching, but there are still a lot of questions about where to focus. There's the devastation at home, the academic challenges brought by over a year of interruptions, and the last is the overarching question of what to do with this unique opportunity to try something new. Tanya runs a business called Little Uprisings, whose tagline is racial justice from the ground up. The organization's website says educators shouldn't shy away from confronting systemic racism in the classroom, an issue which was front and center during COVID. The way she sees it, the system wasn't working for Black students before. The fact that, you know, Boston Public Schools um, services, I think it's around 80 to 90 percent are Black and Brown kids, right? Whereas 80 to 90 percent of the teachers are white. Um, and so what happens is that the the schooling, the the curriculum and things of that sort are just very, very much steeped in whiteness and not around the child, the whole child and what they bring into this into the classroom. So culture, identity, uh, uh, all of the things that kids can bring into this classroom are not honored. Tanya's not alone in her desire for major change and not alone in seeking culturally competent learning environments. According to a survey we conducted at the end of last year, 53% of parents called curriculum better reflecting the experience of people of color a major priority. That included over 60% of both Black and Latino parents. Just as schools are grappling with those questions, another major challenge has returned. COVID itself. The spread of the Delta variant changes the math of safety of many in-person activities, including school. The State Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, or DESE, and the Department of Public Health released updated recommendations on July 30th. We're learning more about the Delta variant every day, so it's possible this will have changed by the time this posts. 
For now, though, they recommend masking indoors for students in kindergarten through sixth grade, aside from those with medical or behavioral exceptions. They also recommend unvaccinated staff and unvaccinated students in the seventh grade and above wear masks indoors. And they recommend schools allow vaccinated students to remain unmasked. There's no state guidance yet on vaccinated teachers and staff, and no masking mandate in Massachusetts schools. Those grades reflect the age cutoffs for when children are eligible for the vaccine at this point. Tracy thinks the state should take these recommendations a step further. There are realms of decision-making where that should be the department's job. Masking in schools is definitely going to be one of them. You need to do that. Take the hit. Like, People are going to, there are going to be people who are going to yell about that. That shouldn't have to be the school committee's job. Um, Same thing with, you know, we're going to need a vaccination requirement. Take the hit. That's supposed to be DPH and DESE's job. That's your job. It shouldn't be the school committee's job. Um, State should require it for all public employees, regardless. And Tracy's support for a vaccination requirement is shared by the vast majority of Massachusetts residents. Our recent statewide poll found 84% support requiring teachers and school staff be vaccinated. 81% support requiring vaccine-eligible students be vaccinated. This echoes pretty broad support for other vaccine mandates, including one for public employees, and even for employer mandates for all in-person workers. The strength of this support is likely related to concerns over the emergence of the Delta variant. 76% say they are very or somewhat concerned about the impacts of Delta. The Massachusetts Teachers Union this week urged Governor Baker to instate a school mask mandate in line with CDC guidance. State Senator Jason Lewis also says that the state will need to revisit the existing guidance in light of the Delta variant and CDC recommendations. So I do think that Desi uh, and Governor Baker, you know, need to be looking very carefully at the latest guidance and um, and I and I, I think that will warrant um, statewide uh, action to be taken, uh, for example, on um, having a consistent masking policy for uh, elementary schools. Um, but that's just one example. Though the state has not come out forcefully on vaccine or mask requirements, it has made one thing clear. Remote learning will not be much of an option. For the fall, all districts and schools will be required to be in-person, full-time, five days a week. And they'll no longer be allowed to offer remote learning as a standard model. Senator Lewis is the Senate chair of the Joint Committee on Education. Even with the Delta variant contributing to rising case counts this summer, he doesn't see that plan changing. I would say I'm, I'm confident that we will be back in school full-time, in-person, five days a week. Um, I, I do believe that you know, that is certainly what uh, DESE is committed to. I, I believe that's what school districts, um, you know, want to do. I think they know that that's the best for uh, for students, both for students' academic uh, progress and also for their um, social-emotional well-being and also to support, you know, working parents. That said, he emphasizes that decisions should continue to be guided by public health experts. Let's keep in mind here, as we talk about how people feel about reopening, that we're not talking about unified blocks. Throughout the pandemic, Tracy said remote and in-person classes have had firm advocates. Probably the pandemic in many ways may have gotten us even even clustered into our smaller groups. So, you know, I've talked to countless parents who said, well, everybody I know feels this way. 
okay, but you know, the people who are in the next block over feel a different way. So for every parent who was arguing passionately that we absolutely had to get every single kid back into the building as soon as possible, I had parents who were arguing passionately that we absolutely couldn't put anybody into a building until absolutely everybody could be vaccinated. Senator Lewis says that there may still be a place for remote schooling in some capacity. For some students and families, it's certainly a minority, but for some, uh, remote schooling has, they have thrived. Um, and, um, and I think that is something we should learn from and think about how do we continue to best serve those, those particular students. Um, you know, uh, even prior to the pandemic, we have had some um, virtual schooling options in Massachusetts. Right now, there are two statewide virtual schools. But since the pandemic, 13 districts have also applied to open remote schools and are waiting to hear back from DESI. Students from different districts who want that that kind of an option for, for attending school could could enroll in those schools, um, although there are some limits on their um, on their capacity. Regardless of how prevalent remote schooling will be next year, there's no doubt that school will look different. The runway to the first day of school is getting shorter and shorter. And parents, students, administrators, and teachers alike all have their own ideas of what they want school to offer this year. And that's with an influx of federal money coming in. Boston Public Schools, for example, is receiving $400 million over the next three years. People want to know how it'll get spent. Tanya is one of them. There needs to be more transparent about how the money's going to be spent. I am um, a Boston Public School uh, graduate, uh, and so is my mother. And so I think a lot about sort of the legacy of our communities um, kind of being pat on the head and saying, we'll take care of it. It'll be fine. Just keep sending your kids to the school. And, and, and I didn't notice it until my child went into the school, right? Just this idea of this paternalistic, we are going to take care of you um, and we know what's best for you. Um, and I've been advocating so much just for them to stop doing that. Tanya's tried to speak up about how she thinks the money should be spent during public comment sessions. But she says it feels like she's just speaking into the void. If schools want to know how to best serve the students next year, Tanya says they don't have to look too far to find the answers. We actually know what's best for us. Ask us how we should spend this money. 80 to 90 percent of the kids in Boston public schools are black and brown. Ask us how this money should be spent um, for the betterment of. And you would be you would be you would be surprised or you'd be like, wow, these are some really great ideas. You sit down and talk with a group of parents about what's the best thing for their kids and then listen, there, there are just some innovative, really wonderful ideas happening. The list of things the state and city could choose to do with the money is long. Expanding early education is one idea that a group of business leaders have gotten behind. Other proposals that are out there include more academic supports, like intensive tutoring, summer school, hiring more teachers, more mental and emotional health resources, or updating school buildings, to name just a few. There's disagreement on how quickly to spend the resources also, with the state legislature so far preferring a slow and deliberative approach. In Worcester, city administration priorities at the start of this budget season were to put funds toward professional development and literacy strategies, Tracy said. So we actually took a bunch of that money and we pushed it. First of all, we pushed the 
thing that was supposed to be professional development training into school adjustment counselors, which is our effectively social workers, because we said, look, we've got to actually have additional supports in the school for this. And then we took the literacy funding and we pushed that straight into elementary school teachers. And we said, we expect this to be smaller class sizes. Um, and we got in a back and forth about, well, look, smaller class sizes don't improve test scores. And I mean, the there was just basically, which was met by outrage by the school committee, because we said, this isn't about test scores. This is about whether or not we're going to have you know, functional first graders. One thing to come out of this is a profound skepticism from administrators and parents like Tracy that the state will act promptly and coherently in a crisis, that it will make hard choices truly based on safety and district needs. Listen to parent and teacher feedback and incorporate that feedback. If you had asked me, I, I mean, I'm Massachusetts born and raised and I'm, you know, as much of a, a you know, a go Massachusetts person as possible. And <clears throat> education is what I live and breathe. But if you had asked me if, you know, when we had a major pandemic, how would the educational in- institutions of Massachusetts respond? Um, I would never have guessed that the state would have sort of collapsed in the ways that it it has and continues to, really, even right up until now. From what we heard in our interviews, the lack of timely guidance from the state has been a defining characteristic of education during COVID. Like we said, there's a countdown ticking. Schools are supposed to reopen in person on September 9th, just a month away. What will it look like? If I knew that answer, I would be less anxious. I, I have no idea. Uh, and, and and I hope that those details will be clarified soon. But I'm not sure. Am I going to be asked to do hybrid again? Uh, will I have to teach in masks? Are distancing rules still in fact? There are so many things that are going to impact my own planning and how I'm going to be teaching this 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 year. And the, the fact that there are so many unknown variables and the fact that we're most likely not going to know until a few weeks before school starts is, is really anxiety provoking. That's it for this week's episode of Mass Reboot. Next time, we're looking at dating, marriage, and relationships during the pandemic as we head into a massive wedding boom and a surprisingly fraught hot fact summer. Join us next week for episode seven, Love. Mass Reboot is a production of the Mass Inc. Polling Group in collaboration with Commonwealth Magazine. It's produced by Steve Cazella, Jennifer Smith, and me, Libby Gormley. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. To lend your support and help us make more episodes of Mass Reboot, donate at patreon.com slash mass underscore reboot. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.